0: Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, our hearts are ablaze with thanksgiving and praise this morning with gratitude, sheer gratitude for the privilege of joining together, Father, as your redeemed people. Lord, the book of Ephesians commands us to look to you as the one unifying factor for your body. And also, Lord, the instructions then follow to walk in a manner worthy of our call. It is because there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all, that there is one body unified in His perfect sacrifice. It is in Christ that we celebrate. It is in Christ upon whom we have the basis for fellowship. It is in Christ that we have our salvation. It is in and through Christ and His Spirit work in us that we are sanctified. It is in Christ that we have hope of life eternal. And it is in Christ. That we, Lord Jesus, this morning can have a meaningful time opening your word, sharing it, Lord, with each other in fellowship later, and, Lord, having it correct and shape our souls this morning by its proclamation. I pray that you would bow myself and everyone in this room before the authority of your holy word, and that it might be seed that falls on soil made fertile by your Spirit's tilling even today, that it may produce fruit unto your glory and the advancement of your kingdom 30, 60, and a fold In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, our passage, our text, will be in Hebrews chapter 6. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews 6. And we'll read together uh, verses 3. Maybe we'll start in verse 1 through verse 9 or so. The title of this morning's message is The Danger of Dullness. There are two times in the course of Hebrews 5 and 6 that dullness or dull of hearing or another word sluggish is used to translate the same Greek word that reminds us of a state of mind that we are sometimes wont to fall into, but the word of God is sufficient to correct even this, and this morning correction comes by way of his word in Hebrews 6. So let us stand together and read read these words, follow me as I read. Your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 6. Again, beginning in verse 1, we have the Word of God which tells us, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washing and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is the infallible Word of God. You may be seated. I was very thankful, I'm sure, with the rest of you that attended last week to hear the Word of God preach. Pastor Joe Reed blessed us with a guest visit. Turn back with me to his text very briefly. And God's providence, it supplies a great segue. Matthew 11 particularly verse 12. Turn with me to Matthew 11, verse 12. His text last week provides a great segue for our message this morning on the danger of dullness. In Hebrews 11, Christ is commending the work of John the Baptist and his ministry, his calling, the specific things that he was prepared and advanced by the Spirit of God to do. And as he remarks on the unique nature of his calling and how he is foremost among the prophets, we have this curious detail about the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of kingdom work that Jesus brings forward in context. And that comes in Matthew eleven twelve, which says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of God has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Joe instructed us from Matthew chapter 11 that there is a tenacity and a zeal and a dedication that the Christian life requires and is part and parcel fruit and effect of the Spirit's work inside of us that is described in Jesus' own words as a certain kind of violence. What is the danger, we might ask, of being too lackadaisical, of being too passive, too laid-back, Too calm, cool, collected, and shy, reserved, and too uh, remiss and negligent in our duty as Christians. How many of us, after all, would describe our zeal for the Lord and our passion to pursue Him and expand His kingdom as a violent course of action? What is the danger of refusing to heed the kingdom call to violence? Well, Hebrews 6 answers this question with frightening clarity. Hebrews 6 answers this question when it draws the attention of the hearers to the danger of becoming dull of hearing, obstinate to the truth, to become conditioned to the gospel such that it is mundane and trivial to you now, to become stunted in your appetite so you can only digest milk, and not having a desire to move on to meat and solid food. Last week's message Reminded us of the reality of true Christianity. True Christianity involves, and this is my summary of what I learned from Joe's message, true Christianity involves an obedient application of force necessary to overcome obstacles between us and our calling in Christ. That is what it means to be violent for the kingdom of God. It is an obedient Again, an obedient application of force necessary to overcome obstacles between us and our calling in Christ. And so we were exhorted to mortify or to kill sin. Why? Because sin is an obstacle that stands between us and our calling in Christ. We are to violently oppose sin in ourselves. To confess, to put it aside, to pray for our affections to change, to be quick to repent. We are to, in some cases, at least be willing to sell all that we have. We willing to lay everything aside that nothing may stand in between us and Christ. That nothing may be a condition on our part for serving him. I'll serve you if I can keep thus and so. If my relationship with so and so is not threatened. We are called to violently, if necessary, put aside all other loves and affections. If the call of God requires it of us. We are called to violently take up the cross. That is, endure the disowning of family in some cases. To be dragged before courts and authorities in other cases. To endure martyrdom if that's His calling for us. To die for the faith as a witness to Jesus Christ. To endure mockery, the crucifixion of our flesh, is a daily concern. And the disciplines of sanctification are the calling of the true believer. This section in Hebrews Chapter 5 towards the end and chapter 6 towards the beginning. This section opens and closes identifying a red flag for us that we may not be as violent as we ought in our Christian life. What is this red flag? Well, the same Greek word appears twice in the original text. It's translated the first time as dullness of hearing. Verse 11 again in Hebrews 5. But about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Your senses have become less acute and less sharp. The reception of the Word of God is less likely to sink in to your mind and then be translated into actions. This kind of dullness is a red flag and a danger sign. And in this state of mind, we need the sharp, the corrective, the convicting Word of God to call us once again to war, to sharpen the sword of the Spirit in our hand, to exercise it. So just as Hebrews says, we through, uh, might be trained in our discernment through the constant practice of distinguishing both good and evil. With the word committed to memory, with diligent thinking and processing, we take back the ground that the enemy wanted to steal through dullness. Again, this word appears at the close of our text this morning in chapter 6, verse 12. Of Hebrews it says so that you may not become sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited promises a little foreshadowing of the chapter uh, later in the book chapter 11 where we have a list of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises like Abraham like Noah some who were sawn in two endured great hardship and stonings and beatings and famine and sword for the sake of Christ. May we not become sluggish, the, our author says, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So these two terms, a sluggishness and also a dullness of hearing, both are translations of the Greek word nothros or nothros. And this word connotes the following adjectives. It means to be blunt, dull, sluggish, remiss, slack, lazy, listless, inert, and lackadaisical. The danger of this kind of dullness is emphasized again by way of warning in Hebrews 6 in three ways this morning. And these three ways are signaled by three conjunctions in the context. We notice the first one in verse 4. First of all, in verse 3, our author says, And this we will do if God permits. And then there's this for, that conjunction for. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance. We're reminded of the danger of apostasy. What is apostasy? Falling away from one's professed confession. Falling away from one's professed confession of faith. That is what apostasy is. So the severity of that state of mind, that severity of state of attitude is drawn to our attention and signaled by then a list of six things which we'll discover under our first point. The heading for this morning's message, the meat of of it, is the severity of apostasy amplified by the following. The severity of apostasy amplified first by the obligation of revelation, and that's signaled by that first conjunction, four. The second category, the severity of apostasy, is amplified by a second category of truth. And that's, called, and that's uh, summarized in my phrase, the great divide of Calvary in verse 6. And that's signaled by the conjunction since. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God and so on, holding Him uh, or to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And then thirdly this morning, the planting parables, there's an allusion to the Gospels, the synoptic gospels and planting parables that we see signaled by the conjunction for again in verse 7. Our author refers analogously to a parable or parabolic language at least. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God and so on, it warns against thorns and thistles. So that's the basic structure this morning of our message. Let us consider and heed the warning of Hebrews chapter 6 today, so that we may not be captive to the dullness of hearing, but we might hear that siren and that alarm of the Word of God cutting through the cobwebs of our flesh and our thinking and our patterns of behavior that may be lulling us into spiritual sleep and laziness. And let us consider the severity of what is warned of in this case. We are in dangerous ground if we are sluggish and lax. We are on dangerous ground if we are dull of hearing. And the author wants us to realize the extent of this danger when he communicates to us the severity of apostasy, first of all, amplified by the obligation of revelation. Another way to phrase the obligation of revelation is simply this, to whom much is given, much is required. If you have heard the knowledge, if you have some knowledge of the truth, if the gospel has been proclaimed to you, you are now more accountable because of that revelation. Read with me again Hebrews 6 verse 4. For it is impossible, our author says, to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. I submit to you there's a list of six categories of truth that the author trusts have been the experience of his hearers. The church to whom the author of Hebrews writes, that is to say, has shown at one point in time something akin to repentance. It certainly looked like it on the outside. They had no doubt to a man, those in this church perhaps confessed their sin. They had admitted that they were fallen, frail, sinful creatures. They had shown at least some extent of remorse, at least on the surface. And yet now, the author is fearful that something about their heart condition had changed. Secondly, something else had been their experience. They had been enlightened. This term simply means to, be, to have your attention and understanding drawn to something you didn't otherwise see. A light turns on, and it illuminates something you couldn't see in the dark. These people have come to a knowledge of truth that is beyond what the average pagan world had known. Partially, it could have been to their... We, imply, uh, we draw from the text, we infer that they had a Jewish heritage. The, Jewish herit- or the Jews by their heritage... By having the Scriptures entrusted to them, the oracles of God, as the book of Romans says, had more enlightenment, they had more revelation from God than the pagan world had. Thus, there was a higher level of accountability. The gospel had been preached to this church, not just the word delivered to them through their Jewish heritage in the form of the Old Testament, but also the testimony through the apostles of the work of Jesus Christ, fulfilling those old covenant prophecies. And so now they had experienced a level of enlightenment that held them accountable. It raised the stakes. Thirdly, in the text we see that this uh, group of people had tasted the heavenly gift. That means they had tangibly experienced things that are unique to the Christian life, Christian experience within the body of Christ. Our author isn't very specific on exactly what all these are. But I think we find some parallels to this list of six in the list of six that immediately precedes it, which he calls the elementary doctrines of the faith. He calls it um, the elementary doctrine or in another place, the basic principles, of the oracles of God. So the building blocks, the basics, the experience and the proclamation of the gospel had been shared by this group of people. They had not only shared in that, but they'd also shared to some degree in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And, and then in verse 5, and have tasted again that's, that word that they themselves ha- have experienced. They've tangibly encountered the goodness of the Word of God. The Word of God was in their uh, hearing, even through these words that were written to them, as well as, No doubt, the Old Testament Scriptures and the testimony of the apostles that they had heard. And and also, uh, and finally, the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come, what could that refer to? Well, the beginning of the book tells us about the significance, the redemptive historical significance of these moments in history. It says that long ago, in Hebrews 1.1, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Notice verse 2. He identifies this time, contemporaneous, with this letter as the last days. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. goes on to contrast by superlative measure... The glory of Christ even to the most glorious of celestial beings such as angels. So this was a significant time and a moment. The revelation of Christ had come. This church had experienced the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of history. And all of redemptive history hinged on the incarnation. And Christ had come. So, this ought, so what was then the obligation, the responsibility... The accountability associated with this kind of truth. Well, that really was the question. How should a church that has received these riches, this list of six that I've just given you, and many more, how should they respond when they meet together? Should they suffer dullness of hearing among them? They're not all that interested in digging deeply into theology. I don't know how Jesus Christ fulfills the office of the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. you got me. To be honest with you, I'm not even sure if I've heard that name before. Melchizedek. Where does that come from? The author was jealous to share with them the deep and precious things of truth. He had said in chapter 5 verse 10, Christ was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He will proceed in chapter 7 to speak of this Melchizedek and the uniqueness of his office and its relationship to Christ. But he laments, first of all, in verse 11 of chapter 5, that about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. You're content with a plateau of understanding. You figure that this diet of milk is sufficient for you. They had heard the basic principles of the oracles of God in verse 12. These are described as milk, not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk, however, it's insufficient source, they are unskilled in the word of righteousness, they remain childlike. Verse 14 tells us, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers, their power of discernment, Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The riches that this church had received by way of revelation demanded of them a responsibility to become teachers. To practice understanding and applying the word of God. To grow into maturity. To leave the foundation, not leave it entirely, but that is to say build upon it. Of elementary doctrine to go on to maturity. And again in one, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instructions about washings, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are all basic building blocks. He's still in the milk category here. It says, and this we will do, that is, go on to maturity if God permits. And then we get up to verse 4, which we have just covered in detail, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, in the heavenly gift, and so on. Later in your own study, I would encourage you to take those six against each other, those six elementary principles, and then those six categories of revelation that the church has received. And you'll see some overlap there. You'll see how they augment and complement each other. The first six are stated, and then the second six are related to them. They both begin with repentance, for instance, and then they continue all the way through and they close with end times or final or big picture future eschatological realities. So that's a little of the context of the revelation that this church has received. And drawing their attention to the riches that they possessed also drew to their attention the severity of what they would be accountable for if they took that too lightly, if it became old hat hat to them. Something trivial and routine and did not build upon that foundation. With truth comes responsibility. With revelation comes obligation. Secondly, under this same category of obligation and revelation, what is the effect of that revelation on the soul? Two words came to mind to contrast one one to the other in the the, uh, spirit of this text. Those two words in my mind were jolted or jaded. Let me ask you this. What is the feeling that you get when the word is preached in your ears on a Sunday or when you participate in the Lord's table? Does it have a sort of jolting effect? Does it kind of snap you out of the lethargy and the fleshly living that sometimes corrupts us during the week? Does it have a washing effect of the dust of this life and its cares and concerns and snaps your attention back? and quickens your hearing, gets the cobwebs, cobwebs and wax out of your spiritual ears, and rings the clarion bell of truth to you once again? Does it serve as shock therapy to pull you back into submission to the authority of Christ? It ought to. It ought to. As we submit ourselves to the Word of God, we find that isn't, it isn't all soothing, and it isn't all comfort. You know, there's different kinds of radio stations. Uh, There's the heavy metal stations. There's the easy listening. There's the ever so annoying classic rock, and that's all the same. And it drives you nuts if you're a contractor like me and you have to work with a bunch of other subs. And you listen to that all day long. There's a Christian station. There's talk radio. I think some people think that if Christianity or the Bible was a radio station, they have half a mind that it's easy listening. Oh yeah, it's just the routine thing you do on a Sunday. It kind of goes in one ear, out the other. It's sort of like background noise, ambient sounds in the background of life. It is not that way. If you read the Bible according to its own terms, and if you hear it as it is delivered, it will ring with a clarion call of authority and truth to correct, to shape, to sharpen. The Word of God is a hammer, according to the prophet Jeremiah. It breaks idols in pieces. The Word of God is a fire that burns chaff. And if there's nothing left that isn't burnable, it will destroy you. The Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword we see in this own book here. What is a sword for? It's for killing some things. It can also be used to do surgery in other cases. The Word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword... Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God ought to feel like a piercing implement. Cutting through to the core. Revealing our sin. Doing surgery in our lives. Drawing our attention back to our Messiah and our Savior. It ought to jolt us. Too many times I'm afraid we fall prey to what shamed the church of the Hebrews in this book. That they instead of being jolted were jaded. Much of the modern so-called evangelicalism of today really needs a control-alt-delete command. I even think of some of the songs I heard growing up. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. You guys ever hear that song? Softly and tenderly, Jesus. There is a gospel call that comes to the people, 3,000 strong, when Peter preaches it, fresh off the heels of the risen and ascended Messiah, and it snows softly and tenderly. It cuts to the heart, brings men to their knees, and causes them to cry out in anguish, Men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? This happened to the jailer after an earthquake. When the word of God was spoken in clarity and truth, it was not a wooing lullaby. It was a convicting standard of righteousness. The word of God is powerful. It is quick, it is true, it is accurate and precise, and it's meant to jolt us from the lethargy, dullness of hearing, from all of those adjectives I mentioned before, bluntness, dullness, from being remiss and slack and lazy, listless, inert and lackadaisical, to call our attention like a sergeant back to obedience to the authority of Christ. A preacher I recommend to you, Arta Zerdia, was quoted as saying, The gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is not an invitation. How many invitations? How many wooing gospel calls? How many please come, Jesus loves you, arms wide open, altar experiences has this world heard from probably well-meaning but perhaps misled preachers in the last hundred years? Artaxerde is so bold to say, and I would say, echoing the sentiments of Scripture, that the gospel is not an invitation. What is it? Instead, it's a summons, he says. To refuse it is not to decline it. Oh, no thank you. No thank you, Jesus. Well, you know, that's not the way the gospel comes. It comes as a summons. To refuse it is not to decline it, but to defy it. The gospel comes as a command to all men everywhere to repent and to believe. And the gospel comes by further imperative to us after we come to Christ to obey and to follow Him even unto the death. Have we become too jaded that we don't hear the jolt of the gospel anymore? Then Hebrews is written for us. Many of you have been in Christianity, Christian culture and church long enough. Whether it's your family background or your present experience, to finish many of my gospel sentences from this pulpit, let's be honest. Many of you know, and once I begin the subject of a sentence, what the predicate will be. When I say Jesus is, your mind is already at Lord. When we say these things, there's only one way of salvation comes to mind. But being in right standing with the Lord and growing in maturity in Christ is not being able to finish the preacher's sentences. Instead, it is an attention... It is a commitment to the truth of the gospel that keeps you awake and alert and growing, sharpening and honing your skills by active and diligent service in the kingdom. Finally, under obligation of revelation, the author calls us to not just believe in an abstract idea, but to actually put our faith in it. In verse 12, he says that you may not become sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's not enough to know. It needs to be accompanied by faith. That is the truth of the Word of God. He has said in chapter 4, again in the attitude of warning, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, Listen, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's not enough to hear. It's not enough to understand on some intellectual level. It's not enough to memorize. It's not enough to rehearse. It's not enough even to go through robotic Christian-like motions. There needs to be a faith that accompanies the hearing of the Word. Otherwise, it doesn't produce its effect. It dulls you, jades you instead of jolting you instead of jolting you and encouraging and exhorting you towards righteousness and godliness. What is the active role of a foundational Christian concept, Christian concept, in the life of a believer? How is truth to serve us in this Christian life? Well, it is to propel us forward. I have to go to this verse now because Danny brought it up in morning prayer. Uh, in the providence of God, it was on His mind as well. I had used it as a cross-reference in Second Corinthians just to illustrate to you how one might repent or appear to repent and it not be substantive at all. Second Corinthians uh, 7 explains the two different categories to us a little more closely. It says in Second Corinthians 7, 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For you see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. There's a lot of overlapping themes of Hebrews chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians 7. Even that word earnestness reappears in 6.11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Also, the two kinds of repentance come to mind when we see that there's a kind of repentance that if it's abandoned, you cannot be restored to. Verse 4, "...for it is impossible to restore again to repentance." Those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift who shared in the Holy Spirit and so on. There is a godly grief, that is to say, that looks like repentance. It's a change of attitude temporarily. It's a kind of remorse, but it's the same kind of remorse Judas had after he sold his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. He went out and promptly hung himself, but that death was not sufficient to save his soul. The death of the man that he betrayed was the only thing sufficient to save his soul. If he didn't bow at his Savior's feet, no remorse would save him. Only repentance and faith in the work of Jesus Christ is sufficient. That is the obligation of Revelation, to worship and serve Him, to give Him our all. Secondly, this morning, major point, the severity of apostasy is by the great divide of Calvary. Focusing more briefly on just one verse this morning, verse 6. If they then fall away, I should back up. Um, This is actually a completion of the thought all the way from verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. I'm sorry, verse 4. For it is impossible to restore again. And then that list that we covered, then verse 6. If they fall, or if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt since they are crucifying again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt i submit to you that there is a great divide at calvary and all of humanity is split between wheat and chaff sheep and goats the found and the lost and this great divide is pictured here in my Bible notes, um, this text, there is an explanation I felt was helpful. It says of this verse, that is Hebrews 6.6, 6, Such apostates, so these people, this category of falling away from your professed faith that the author of Hebrews has in mind, this commentator adds, he says, Such apostates have returned to a point where the cross does nothing but condemn them as accomplices in murder. Such apostates have returned to a point where the cross does nothing but condemn them as accomplices to murder. Going a bit beyond this, when we think of the witness of Christ's blood, it testifies to something, testifies to one of two things. Either those that killed him are guilty of the most heinous crime in all of human history and will suffer justly in hell on account of being responsible for his death or it testifies to something else that that blood that was shed was the very blood that satisfies the judgment of yours and my sin. Jesus' blood cries out either against you as a murderer of him at the cross or or his blood witnesses and cries out, on your behalf, I took his punishment on the cross. Let me remind you of how God reacts to the shedding of innocent blood. Genesis 4 verse 12, the first great sin following Adam and Eve's fall was where a brother murdered another brother. And what is the response from God at this horrible crime? He says, your brother's blood is crying out, For vengeance from the ground. There is an unsatisfied debt that justice demands. In Genesis 9, verse 6, the principle of social order in a fallen world is given to Noah. For man's life, I require a life. The death of a man unjustly so can only be reconciled, can only be reckoned or made right with the death of the one who committed that crime. In Psalm 9, verses 11 through 12, our worship text this morning, God is exalted as the one who avenges the death of the innocents. And this is speaking primarily in the context of humans who have been slaughtered. Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10, the martyrs who are unjustly killed for their faith, they gather before the throne and they cry out in worship of Almighty God to avenge their death. They cry out for the God of justice to do right and to demolish the enemies of the kingdom of God. And the enemies of His nature by destroying those who took their own life. Isaiah 26, 21, turn there briefly with me this morning. The prophets often lamented and called out to, for repentance in a land that was ripe for judgment because they had taken life into their own hands presuming to be God and saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The nations had fallen prey to exalting themselves above His authority, and there would be hell to pay for such an infraction. And thus, in this context, the prophets would cry out, Isaiah twenty-six twenty-one, for instance, For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, And will no more cover its slain. So my point to you this morning. The great divide of Calvary. The witness of Christ's blood is. How much more will the blood of Christ himself. Cry out for justice. To those who are responsible for slaying him. If the blood of humans. Fallen humans. In their innocence. And this is only relatively speaking. Because all of them are sinners. Cries out. For justice from the ground. How much more? Do you see how this amplifies the severity of apostasy? To be responsible for Christ's blood? That Christ's blood would witness against you instead of for you? Lord, let it never be. It ought to choke us up. It ought to move us to repentance. If we should ever show things like sluggishness and dullness of hearing, that might be a red flag that we are in danger of falling away from our professed faith. May we repent quickly. and may we, may we run to that very blood that we recognize we shed and not do so as Christ's judge and jury and executioner, but instead run to that blood because it is the only blood that can cover our sins and can satisfy the judgment that our wicked sinfulness deserves. And this is the message of Hebrews 6.6. 6 that the word or that the blood of Christ may be on our behalf and not cry out against us in our apostasy. Secondly, you might ask the question, I'm sure by now having painted, hopefully accurately from the scriptures, the drastic truth of the severity and the warning that the author means to convey of falling away from the faith, this question might be uh, just blaring in your mind. Who are apostates? What is someone who falls away from the faith? Am I uh, an apostate? Those questions come to mind. Well, first of all, let's consider who they are not. Apostates are not true believers. I say that with the authority of the rest of Hebrews behind me. I submit to you. So let us turn to Hebrews 7.25 and let us consider this. Consequently, He, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So this is profoundly encouraging. Christ's work on Calvary is effective to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost I submit to you the ground of the sufficiency and completion of His salvation is based on His commitment to intercede for us. That is to say, as long as Christ intercedes for you, you will always be an answer to His prayer. Praise the Lord. From God's perspective, there's never a change uh, that is to say, from someone who is fully in Him, and then someone who falls away. Again, the category of apostasy is one from our perspective, from our appearance and or the appearances, and our judging of fruit. This case is perhaps made even stronger. That is, that apostates are not true believers. In Hebrews chapter ten, verse fourteen. Hebrews ten fourteen. We have this glorious promise. But when Christ, or back up to 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Notice 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Even in the immediate context, our author adds this hopeful addendum as he brings this charge. He says in Hebrews 6, though we speak in this way, verse 9, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to salvation. So the things that truly belong to salvation are not is not ultimate apostasy, however, this warning is always appropriate to the true church. The true church will always heed it. The true church will always take seriously examining themselves to see, as Paul says in the end of second Corinthians whether they are in the faith. they will be sensitive they will be uh, they will not be dull, but they will be quick and alert, and they will repent for the times when they grow a confident in the flesh and drift from confidence in Christ. So that leaves then the question, who are they then? Who are the apostates, uh, the, hypothetically speaking and, re, uh, and really speaking in the life course of the church? Let me submit to you that those who fall away from their uh, professed faith are ones who defy all appearances To the contrary, and this is where it's more frightening. From our perspective, if we had been following Christ as one of his disciples, do you think earlier on we would have questioned Judas's integrity? No, he's one of us. Uh, He's endured and walked with Christ alongside of us. You know, there's times when you see red flags and, well, I'm not... You know, I kind of saw that coming, hindsight 2020 now, that certain person I thought I knew was in Christ has now fallen away, but, you know, it sort of figures But i got to be honest, even in my own experience, there's those who I knew to be strong in the faith that fell away. I did not see it coming. I wish that I was as as on fire for God as they were back in the day. God knew I did not. It was like Judas with the twelve, following Christ apparently faithfully. I mean, this message is throughout the Scriptures. We see it in other texts as well in the New Testament. We uh, see comparisons to the Old Testament. Um, additionally, in Hebrews chapter 4, or chapter 3, for instance, it says, Therefore, the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, this is a similar warning to the language of chapter 6, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. For 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, he repeats several times today. If you hear his voice, verse 15, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there's uh, this apostasy is understood then in terms of those who abandon the leadership of Moses and therefore the authority of God and his word in the wilderness wanderings. These were those who had plenty of revelation, did they not? You know the list in Hebrews 6 that talks about repentance, enlightenment, tasted the heavenly gifts shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Something like that had been true in the experience of all were baptized into Moses and crossed the Red Sea. They had seen the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory of Christ. They had witnessed the powerful prophecies coming true before them. They saw the pantheon of the Egyptian gods defeated one by one by plagues of supernatural proportion. The sea was split before them. They went through on dry land. Their enemies were quenched in the waves behind them. The pillar of fire guided them at night and the cloud by day and quail were flown in and manna every morning. What was the obligation of that revelation? They were responsible to bow before the God who provided for them in the wilderness and revealed Himself to them through the cloud and through the flame. And so are we responsible to bow to Christ who has been revealed to us through the proclamation of the Scriptures. So who are these apostates? They are the ones like Judas like the rebels in the wilderness, like the ones who cried Hosanna in Matthew 21 and then cried crucify Him towards the end of the book. They are the ones who appeared to be allied with Christ and with God in His work and then, unbeknownst to us, suddenly, you know, as to the reason why, suddenly fell away. P.E. Hughes says it this way, The sin of apostasy, apostasy then is a grim and uh, far more than a merely hypothetical possibility for persons who through identification with the people of God have been brought within the sphere of divine blessing. You can be brought within the sphere of divine blessing and not be a true believer, but you may look by all outward appearances to be in the faith. He goes on to say, They may be baptized as Simon Magus, Maginus was. Uh, that th- these are biblical examples. He may have occupied in Christian labors, as Demas was. Uh, Demas was one that fell away that Paul assumed was legit, but showed himself to be outside the faith. Just like uh, John records, they went out from us, showing themselves not to be of us in the first place. They may be, according to the end of Matthew chapter 7, the great Sermon on the Mount, they may be endowed with charismatic gifts. They may be preachers even, healers of the sick, and casters out of demons and privileged to belong to an inner circle of disciples as Judas was, yet their heart may be far from the one they profess to serve. Finally this morning, the severity of apostasy is amplified by an allusion to the planting parables. We won't need to spend a lot of time here because we've studied some of those parables in a recent series in Matthew. Matthew 13 and 21 come to mind. But notice the similarity of verses 7 and 8 in Hebrews 6 to Matthew 13 and 21, parable of the soil and the sower, parable of the weeds, uh, the wheat and the tares and the weeds in the field, the parable um, later in Matthew 21, the two vineyard parables. In Hebrews 6, 7, the author states, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those uh, for whose sake useful for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned and there he's reminding us of the gospel as it's already been proclaimed in Matthew Mark Luke and John we see the landowner is God He is the one that owns everything. We see that the rain may be considered His patience, the patience of God, His providence, His revelation, His pouring out even through this letter to the Hebrews upon that land. What is the land itself? Well, we could see it as the visible church, in this case the Hebrews, and also in our case. That is the associates, those who associate with, fellowship in, are included in that sphere. In the words of P.E. Hughes, they are those... have been brought within the sphere of divine blessing, that providential grace, that environment of confessing Christianity, but may not be truly there in our hearts. What is the crop, what is the yield or the fruit Uh, that could be in the context of Hebrews the solid food the author speaks about, skillfulness in the Word of God, the ability to grow in maturity, to teach others, a, a, a trajectory that way anyhow, a trained in discernment, A growing understanding of the superiority of Christ, as is the theme of so much of Hebrews, and so on. What are the thorns and thistles? That could be the cares of life, the falling away, the spurning of the gospel. In the context of the book of Hebrews, it probably came attended by great trial. And there are those who are leaving the faith because of difficulty and persecution. It says that they are visiting those in prison. Uh, for their faith and putting themselves in jeopardy to be associated with those who are on the wrong side of pagan law. So this spurning the gospel, this sluggishness, this dullness of hearing, this temptation to walk away from Christ because of persecution, this unskillfulness, immaturity, and vulnerability because of the weakness of the faith could all represent thorns and thistles. And finally, what is the picture here when the author says that the end is to be burned? Well, that is the inevitable and irrevocable Judgment, and that's the fearful consequence of those who ultimately show themselves to not be in Christ. If they then fall away, since they, uh, uh, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance, if they then fall away, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God. So we have seen then the parallels to Matthew 13 and 21. You can perhaps study those more on your own time. Let me close with this thought. Let me submit to you that the message of the danger of dullness, as we have it in Hebrews 6, communicates to us that association and regeneration are are, uh, distinct, but not separate. And I'll explain. The possibility of apostasy is a stern reminder a stern reminder, it has gravity and severity to it. A stern reminder that association and regeneration are distinct but not separate for the genuine believer. You've probably heard in theology that regeneration and sanctification are distinct but not separate. That is, growth in uh, Christ's subsequent obedience and uh, following Him and discipleship is part and parcel to our salvation. It's, but uh, or it's distinct from it, it's something different than the regeneration of, of our, our heart in the first place, but it's never separate. If a heart is regenerate, it will proceed to be sanctified. There is no sanctification without regeneration. That's just legalism. There is no uh, regeneration without sanctification. That's just an apostate in waiting. So you get the picture there. Well, in the same way, Association and regeneration, I submit to you the same could be said. The possibility of apostasy is a reminder of this. Simply associating with a church, being found within a Christian culture, um, attending daily does not guarantee that we are regenerate. But when we are regenerate, we do have a desire to associate. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Uh, Hebrews goes on to say, exhort one another daily so you don't become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We found in our last message in Hebrews 5 uh, many of us or some overlap in theme leading up to these kinds of things. And the exhortation was laid out for us that there is a relationship between obedience and understanding. In other words, there is a full-orbed picture to the Christian walk. It's not just understanding, but it's also obedience. And those two may be distinct, but they are never separate. Same with re-justification, that's actually the term I was looking for, and sanctification. Same with regeneration and association. Those who are in communion truly are truly in Christ, and they both must be present. The possibility of apostasy is a stern reminder of these truths. In closing this morning, And in transition to communion, let us consider one last conjunction in verse 9. We've considered three and what follows that sternly warn us. Now let's consider one that provides us hope. And this is in verse 9. And the conjunction is though. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 9 opens with a hopeful conjunction. Verses uh, 4 and 5 employ the term taste repeatedly. Remember, uh, tasting of the heavenly gift and tasting of the goodness of the Word of God? Let us consider that this morning. As we have the table of the Lord before us today, let us realize, therefore, what is or the great privilege of symbolically tasting the heavenly gift again and the goodness of the Word of God in communion today. And let us ask this question this morning. Does communion today, coming to the Lord's table today, jolt us or are we jaded to it? I would, ex- I would encourage you, exhort you in the next few moments while we pray to quiet your heart before the Lord and ask Him to jolt you, if you will, to call to your attention the severity of following Christ so that if you are struggling with any sluggishness, dullness, if you are in danger of falling prey uh, to the situation described in this book, if there has been a bluntness, if you have been remiss, slack, lazy, listless, inert or laxadaisical, that you would find repentance and that this communion table would never taste so good as it does to you this morning because it is a tangible reminder of the broken body of Christ and His shed blood. And if you are in Him today, it testifies on your behalf that you are saved Because he was punished for you. Let us transition in prayer. Bow your head with me if you would. O Heavenly Father, now as we approach your table, I pray that you would remind us of the table manners we ought to have. That we sit in the presence of the King. He is at the head of the table. And not only do we owe him the courtesy and the respect of being in his house, But we owe Him our lives and our future and eternal lives. And our King was slain. An innocent man, not just a man, God-man, God incarnate, yet went to the cross, bore our transgressions and sins, was slain, beaten, bruised, and crushed for our iniquities. And because of that man, our King and sacrifice, prophet and priest, our Lord forever, Jesus Christ, We have fellowship at His table. I pray that you would, Lord, draw our attention to the glorious reality of the gospel as we partake in communion today. In Jesus' name, amen.